Welcome. You're listening to Sanseet. Where you'll find everything to do with spirituality, life lessons, holistic living, and medicine. To become your true self. We all have stories, journeys, experiences, and love. Here's your host, Erin O'Dowd. Hello and welcome. On today's show, our guest is Tim Braun. He has lectured and done private readings for the past 20 years for Hollywood celebrities, athletes, leaders of business and the world. He has done over 14,000 readings in the past 20 years. Tim has also featured on TV programs such as The Bravo, The Orange County Housewives, and TLC Network show Sin City Rules. He is an author of Life and Death, and you can also find him at timbrawnmedium.com if you want to find out more and see what he's up to and so on. Hello, welcome to the show, Tim. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful, Aaron. Thank you very much for having me. You grew up with children of of six. Uh, Tell us about how you got introduced to the world of uh, mediumship. Sure. I'm the youngest of six children in a very Catholic family. Growing up, both my parents were both Eucharistic ministers for the Catholic Church. So what that means is that my parents were very, very Catholic. And at the age of uh, six years of age, I started seeing and hearing and feeling spirit. But what I was seeing and feeling and hearing, I thought that was just quite normal. I thought that is what everybody was seeing, feeling and hearing. And at that same time, my brother, who was and still is, 18 years older than myself was uh, diagnosed with um, schizophrenia. So I was a young child, you know, in the 1970s, hearing, seeing, feeling spirits. And what I was seeing, feeling, and hearing was completely, at least, normal to me. And what he was seeing and feeling and hearing was scaring him quite dramatically to the point where he would be smashing windows in the house and throwing furniture and throwing silverware, trying to keep the spirits, as he called them, away from him. And that really scared me, Aaron. So from the age of six years of age until probably I was about 22, 23 years of age, I basically, every time I saw spirit out of my peripheral vision, I would just look the other way. Anytime I heard spirit, I would basically look the other way because at that point, I was really afraid of losing my mind as my brother did. And I did, of course, a lot of research on schizophrenia and mental illness and realized that, you know, past the age of 21, the odds of getting mental disease such as schizophrenia is very, very rare. So at that time, I just allowed myself to open up to things that I was seeing and feeling and hearing. And at that time, I was in my uh, dorm room at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles and my college dorm room. And one Sunday morning, um, I woke up about 5.30, 6.30 in the morning I had a dream and it was more like a vision because the vision was at that time, that was back in 1995, Mother Teresa walking off an airplane, wrapping her arm around me and escorting me into her village. The vision was so powerful 
that I realized I have to I have to follow this. I have to find out what this means. I know I'm not losing my mind because I'm 23 years of age. I'm basically two years past getting any type of mental disease or mental illness. So I'm like, I have to follow this. So instantly I called the um, information line for the operator and said, can you tell me of a Catholic church in Los Angeles? And so they said at that time, um, well, we have St. Viviana's Catholic Cathedral. Would you like that number? And I said, sure. So I went to call that number. When I called that number, I said, can you tell me anything about Mother Teresa? And of course, this is 1995 and she was still living. And they says, well, we have two numbers that we can give you that we can refer you to, the brothers of Mother Teresa and the sisters of Mother Teresa. Which number would you like? And I was about ready, Aaron, to say, you know, of course, I'll take the sisters of Mother Teresa because, you know, put two and two together. You know, Mother Teresa's a woman. You know, the sisters of charity, or they're women. I'll just take the women. And I was about ready to say the sisters of Mother Teresa. And that same voice that I heard as a child came back and says, no, ask for the brothers of Mother Teresa. And so um, I went ahead and called the number and the man answered the phone. This is, of course, Sunday morning right after I had the dream. And I didn't want to tell him I had a dream because I didn't want him to think I was losing my mind. And I says, can you tell me anything about Mother Teresa? And he says, well, where are you located? And I says, well, I'm located here in downtown Los Angeles. He says, well, we're just a few blocks up the street from your university. If you want to come over right now, there's a man that came in last night from India and you may be interested in talking to him. Long story short, went over there, met the man. He greeted me at the door. He basically looked at me and he took the words right out of my mouth. He goes, you had a dream about coming to India last night, didn't you? And my mouth just dropped open because I didn't tell anybody I had a dream. And I said, yes. And this is, of course, this is in my book, Life and Death, but I um, found myself in Calcutta, India, three months later, working with Mother Teresa for a week and a half. And what all that proved to me was my visions that I was seeing as a child came back. I wasn't losing my mind, and from that moment on, I started doing my mediumship. Slowly, but surely, it's ended up here with me um, talking to you um, now, many years later, um, doing over 14,500 individual sessions so far. With growing up with a, a brother who was psychiatric, how did that feel in the family? Um, it was very scary. Back in that day, they didn't have really the drugs and the medication that they do now. They basically just treated it with vitamins back at that time. And the other thing was my parents prayed a lot for my brother, but neither really worked, unfortunately. So it was a very hard thing. It was hard on all of us at least to say myself, just because um, I was hearing voices and he was hearing voices as well. So that was a very hard thing because as I mentioned, I just thought I was losing my mind as I was seeing him lose his right in front of me. It must have been tough to grow up with that and having these also similar experiences as well. Absolutely, yes. It was very frightening and very scary, but I feel that, you know, I had to go through that and face that fear and follow my intuition which I knew as a child was always very, very correct. I had to refollow that intuition. Now that I knew at that time I wasn't going to be losing my mind as my brother did, that led me into being a full-time medium now for the last 22 years. From the age of seven to the age of 20, were you having things seeing and hearing in a spiritual aspect? No, not really, because every time that I would see anything in spirit or hear anything in spirit or felt anything in spirit, which at times I did, not often, but at times I did, I would basically turn the other direction. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I was afraid of it. 
Um, I felt that if I tuned into it, that I could possibly be going down the same path as my brother did, and I didn't want to have anything to do with that. And that wasn't until my early 20s did I allow myself to open back up and allow to pay attention to my intuition, my feelings, my dreams, and the things that I was hearing and seeing and feeling as a child. And fortunately, all came back to me rather quickly. It took about a year, year and a half, but fortunately, all came back to me. Once you do it, you kind of always know how to do it. And when you decided to switch it back on, what did it feel? Just like it did when I was a child, it felt very, very comfortable. It felt very calm. It just felt, I guess in a way, very angelic. It just felt very, very comfortable. It's like being at a lovely grandmother's house and having cookies and milk type of thing. It just was a very, very loving, loving, comfortable feeling. You know, even as a child, before my brother's outrageous um, were happening. You know, I would be playing in the backyard with my friend Joey, and we would be back there, you know, day after day with our, our dirt trucks and our shovels and our toy cars, and we would be back there playing and having fun every single day. And came Christmas, a few months later, and I told my mother, I says, you know, we really need to get a, a stocking for my friend Joey. She says, well, who's Joey? And I says, well, Joey, I says, the, the boy that lives three doors down from us. And she goes, what do you mean the, three boy, the boy that lives three doors down from us? She goes, every day when you go out there, you play by yourself. You're, I watch you from the window. You play with those trucks by yourself. And at that point, I thought I was losing my mind because I knew who I was playing with. I knew what I saw. I knew what I felt. And then after that, those images of Joey vanished. They weren't there anymore they didn't come back and that was a sad thing and that's the same time that my brother's issues came about so it kind of all coincided in the same same time frame when you were in your 20s were, were you in university studying um i was yes i started university at 18 and then i was in college for maybe about two two and a half years and then i took some time off about two years off and then i went back to university at 23 and finished when i was 25. Um, what were you studying i was studying communication and film television and film and i thought that was the business that i really wanted to go into very very passionately and after graduation, I worked in the film industry, and I worked in it for a good five, six years on different productions and shows, and worked at Paramount Pictures for a time being. And then when I hit my first Saturn return, which is at 28 years of age, and that's just basically, for those of you who don't know what a Saturn return is, it happens every 28 years, and it's just a big life change. And when I was 28, I went from having entertainment life going into mediumship. So it was very fulfilling on one hand because I was doing my life's purpose and my life's work and helping people. But on the other hand, at that time, I lost really all my friends because all my friends that I developed for the last six years were all in the media film business. And then going from the media film business into mediumship, some of them thought that I was either crazy or I couldn't handle the film industry anymore. So now I became a psychic, which, of course, I'm not a psychic. I'm a medium. So it was really hard. I lost most of all my friends. But the joy of it is that over the years, I gained so many back. And I'd have to say, Aaron, I gained it back tenfold. Friends and family and family that I consider friends um, and some clients that have become family. I have uh, gained all that back at least tenfold. So sure, it was a temporary loss, but it was a hurtful temporary loss, but it all came back in the sense of, as I mentioned, other friends and 
people I met along the way. Was that transition hard to make from being a filmmaker to a medium? It was extremely hard, and that happens for a lot of people during your first Saturn return. And it's an astrological point of reference, as I mentioned. And, and the reason why they call it a Saturn return is when a person's born, the planet Saturn is in a certain aspect of your birth chart, and then it returns at the 28th year and it happens for everybody and that's the time when people get married they get divorced <laughs> they die they give birth to children they get married and it's not always a, a physical death it can also be a big change or so like a death you know a lot of times people will get married at 28 years of age it pushes a joyous situation but then again now they're single friends don't want to hang out with them anymore because they find them boring a lot of times people have children during their first sudden return same thing now you're single friends who are married or not married who don't have children don't want to hang out with you anymore because you're boring so it's a it's a big life change and it's a return because it happens every 28 years 28 and the next time after that would be of course 56 and then after that would be 82 so during my first time return it was pretty strenuous you mentioned about your trip to india and seeing mother Teresa. when you measure what was she like very powerful but powerful in energy, not in height, because I believe she was only like five foot two um, in height, so she was quite small. She's quite tiny, hunched over, so looking like a very small, frail woman, but extremely just energetically just very, very powerful. And fortunately, I um, got to sit with her in prayer in Calcutta for about seven, eight nights in a row getting to see her and getting to pray with her, sitting with her for sometimes, you know, a few hours at a time. My personality is I'm more of a, a jokester. I always like to have fun. I always like to put a smile on someone's face. I always like to keep things light. And at the end of prayer, when she would come out, there would be a handful of people that got permission to be in the convent there with her. They would all, with high respect, bow down. They would want their medals to be blessed by her. And what I would do is I would stick my head every night in between, you know, two tourists or two people that gained permission to be there. And I would put my head in there trying to get another blessing out of her. I would always kind of put my head in there, sneaking it in there. And every time she would catch me, she would kind of slap my face with a loving, loving jab. She would mess up my hair and then she'd give a little pinch to my cheek. And then she would smile with her eyes with me, knowing that I was trying to make her laugh. So... That was kind of the relationship that I had with her. I didn't treat her like a saint. I didn't treat her like a godlike figure. I just treated her like I'd be treating a grandmother. We had a wonderful relationship in that way. When you were in India with Mother Teresa, did it change your life in perspective or anything like that? Yes, it changed my life immediately. You know, I was having this conversation earlier today, strangely enough, and I was telling a colleague of mine, when I landed in India and I woke up the next morning, and of course I was... Now waking up and looking out from my window and seeing, you know, all the filthy children, the streets that are just horrendously filled with trash, um, people walking around that were just stricken with poverty. I remember stretching my hands up to the sky and, and smiling, and I said, oh, thank God I'm back home again. And I caught myself when I was bringing my arms down. Why would I say something like, thank God I'm back home again? I remember saying it very sincerely. And I look back on that and strongly I realize now that that was obviously me picking up a past life with me being in that country. So um, it really kind of got me back on track again and it made me much more aware. It made me much more aware of the indifference, especially where I was from at that time in Beverly Hills, California, where I was living. Everyone in that area of Beverly Hills so 
you know, financially wealthy, but spiritually bankrupt. And then being an Indian, seeing so many different people who were, of course, financially bankrupt, but spiritually wealthy, and seeing the, the draft difference between these two countries. And really, I feel both is wrong. I feel that when anything is out of imbalance, it's, it's wrong. And I really wish that in, of course, Los Angeles, that there'd be a lot more spirituality that would balance out the material. And of course, you know, being in India, I really wish that there'd be much more material that would balance out the spirituality. But in a nutshell, it dramatically and drastically changed my life overnight. How come do you think the balance is not there? Don't know. Um, I think that's a pretty big, large question. Um, I feel that we all choose before we're even born where we come to. You know, and I feel uh, we choose the lessons that we're supposed to choose. And the reason why I feel that is because I definitely know that we choose our parents and we choose our siblings and that soul group before we incarnate. And so if we are you know, choosing that life in that soul group, why wouldn't we be choosing where we would be having and living out that soul group experience? But I feel that, you know, it's all part of the lesson. Who knows? Maybe the people there in India are supposed to learn humility. You know, deep, deep humility. Who knows? Maybe the people in Los Angeles are supposed to learn patience or learn faith and really who their friends are because it's all basically so fake in a way. So I think there's many different lessons on both ends that people are learning in two separate nations in this same world of ours. You've done over 14,500 readings, but do you remember your first reading? That's a good question. Yeah, I very much do remember my first reading. It was in Hawaii, in the island of Oahu, and it was in the year, I think either 1997 or 1996, and um, I was there with a friend who used to live there, so we sat at a restaurant table there in Kailua, which is on the windward side of Oahu in Hawaii, and how we all got seated at the table by the waitress, I was sitting right next to my friend's firefighter friend, and then at the other end of the table it was my friend, his wife, and his two children. And during the, the course of dinner, I kept on hearing this woman's voice come through very, very strong. It was getting louder and louder, and finally I just looked over at this man. I said, I'm only telling you this because this voice in my head is getting so loud that it's not leaving me alone with you. He thought I was just absolutely crazy. And he goes, well, what is it? And I says, well, there's a woman's voice coming through like a mother or mother figure who's telling me two things, to cry over my, my passing and to start joking around with me again. And I just said it, Aaron, just as quickly as I just said it to you right now. Once I said that to him, he just put his hands down on his lap and he started crying. It must have been pretty powerful for his wife and his children because when they saw her husband, their father, crying, they didn't know what to make of it. I don't think they've ever saw this man ever cry before. Uh, he goes, I don't know how you know this, but he goes, my mom just died three months ago, and I'm the youngest of the Portuguese children, and I was the only one that joked around with my mother. Everyone else was very afraid of her. She was a tough woman, but I was the only one that joked around with her. And he said, and at the funeral, he goes, I made sure that I didn't cry once, and I haven't cried since her passing until now. So that woman in spirit, his mother, knew that you know he needed to grieve over the passing of you know her her life her death but she also knew from spirit that you know he wasn't being himself he wasn't being that 
that joking person anymore. So I do remember my first sitting in. It was a very, very powerful experience. When you hear someone, like you just explained, what does it sound like? It's in thought. Sometimes it's actually in voice form. Most of the time it's in thought form um, as well as feeling. And sometimes I actually am able to taste and also smell. So sometimes when I do work for clients, let's just say, for example, if the father or the mother, but we'll call it today in this uh, interview, a father was an alcoholic or a drinker, I will be able to taste the alcohol in my throat um, and many times be able to taste the actual drink that they used to drink. If a person smoked, I'm able to smell that and sometimes in the sitting. Sometimes I'm only able to see the person and how they passed and I'm not hearing anything. Sometimes I'm actually hearing a person who's coming through from spirit and getting validations coming through, but I'm not able to see that person to give what age they were or um, what they looked like in life. So um, it's very individualistic from sitting to sitting. All of them are completely different. But I always tell my clients, whenever you go to a medium, there's one major thing that you should follow the rule by, and that is, everyone is, you know, the less the medium knows, the better. So when you come and have a sitting with a medium, sit back and relax, but keep your mouth closed. You know, the second point, if we want to add a second point for a session with a medium, is make sure that you go receptive. You don't need to say anything, but don't show up the medium's appointment office time late or running late or anxious. Sit in that waiting room or sit in your car or sit in your hotel room if you're visiting a meeting by the hotel room. You know, sit there for 5, 10, 15 minutes and just keep your eyes closed and just relax, come, come calm. So those are the two things that I would suggest when you uh, sit with the medium. And Tim, when a client comes to you for the first time, what is your process with them? Another great question, Aaron. When I have a sitting with a client, I greet them you know, in my lobby at my office, have them sit in a chair in my office, and then I tell them we're going to basically do a uh, two-minute guided meditation. Of course, that is after I instruct them to make sure that their cell phone is turned off or in silent but, you know, not on vibrate mode because that can be very distracting in a sitting. And in that session, I do a two-minute guided meditation just to make myself receptive and calm, you know, for my day or even from my previous sitting, make the client more receptive and calm, and then also making spirit used to or getting adjusted to our energy. And that guided meditation is only about two minutes long. And then after that, for just a minute or two or a couple minutes, I will explain how this works and how I work as a medium, since different mediums work in different ways. And then I will proceed to go through with the client and show who's coming through first. And my process is when I'm looking at my client, when I look off to their left shoulder, that shows me and tells me that that person will come in on their mother's side of the family. When they stand over on the right shoulder, that's your father's side. And then when they stand directly behind you, that would be in the other category, husband or wife, uh, brother, sister, son or daughter, or friend. And that is how I'm able to discern who's who when we do work. You seem to focus in the, the area of, of death, but when they come in, how do they present themselves to you? Sometimes they come in very, very nervous. Sometimes they come in here uh, very, very chatty. Um, and that's why I always like to say the less the medium knows, the better. Sometimes a client, their nervousness will make them very, very talkative. So I don't want them, as it has been in the past, to come in and they sit down and they instantly say, oh, my mother just died three months ago and she died of breast cancer. Her name was Alice. I sure hope that she comes in. 
and I look at the client, I'm like, I wish you would not have given me any of that information because that's, of course, information that I could have validated uh, if you didn't speak up. But of course, that's out of their nervousness, being chatty. Sometimes a person, they'll be the opposite of chatty. They'll be very, very nervous and very, very scared because they don't know what to expect. I always tell clients that whenever you have a sitting with me, you always feel so comfortable the next sitting because you'll know what to expect. But, you know, honestly, after the first 10, 15 minutes of the session, the client usually cries. There's emotion, there's tears, sometimes tears of joy, sometimes tears of sadness. Um, so that is considered healing. And then for the you know rest of the session, which is a good 35, 40 minutes, they really enjoy it. You wrote a book on life you and death. What made you write it? To help and heal as many people as possible. And that's the book's title, Life and Death. And if anybody wants to uh, you know, purchase it or get a copy of it, they can go to timbronmedium.com and get a copy. But I wanted to really help as many people as possible. And I had the book in my mind, Aaron, for a good eight years. And people said, oh, you should write a book. You should write a book. And they would say this year after year after year. And it wasn't until after about eight or nine years, I said, you know what? I really want to write it now. And so um, I really disciplined myself and set time aside which is kind of hard for me to kind of sit still. I mean, even doing uh, sitting in the sitting with you for the hour sometimes is a, a little difficult when I'm not doing mediumship work. When I am doing the mediumship work, you know, I can sit for, you know, over an hour, no problem. You know, I wanted to help as many people as possible, but I wrote the book in a way of healing, to help heal a person. I mean, I have a lot of exercises in the book on bereavement exercises and what to do and, and how to cope and, things like that. I also put it some case stories in there as well from some of the sittings in, in the past, but I wanted to make sure that anybody that read the book from whatever denomination of religion that you had or from whatever upbringing that you had, that you would read it. And my intention was, is I wanted someone who would have been the most skeptical, the most you know anti-spiritual. My goal was that they would read the book and they say, yeah, that was a good book or yeah, that was an okay book. Every person that I've talked to that have read it from different religions and different backgrounds, a lot of them said, that was a very, very good book. I actually bought a couple copies. I actually gave them to my friends, or that was a good book. I'm really glad I read it. It really helped me. Honestly, I haven't gotten any, actually, negative feedback from the book, and, and that was my intention all along, is really to try to help and heal as many people from all different walks of life whether religion or whether from country or whatnot. And that book right now is uh, translated in Italian and it's in over 2,200 bookstores across Italy right now. And we translated it and got it in German. So it's in the German territories right now in bookstores in uh, Switzerland and Austria and Germany. And of course it's in the States and, and the UK. Uh, it was done by Finnhorn Press. So that was really my intention about that book is you know, really to help heal people because unfortunately, you know, a lot of people are living and leading lives, you know, quiet lives of desperation. They don't have the resources or they don't really want to uh, go to therapy or really do any work on themselves after a person passes because it's a sign of weakness. My intention was that they could just read the book and really kind of get that healing that way. That's proved to be very, very beneficial. Over the 14,500 people you've done, if there are someone that's walked off the street or if they're a celebrity, does it matter in your mind? No, I don't care. I always say death does not discriminate. You know, every person who comes to see me, 
whether a celebrity or not, um, each person has a mother, or at least had a mother. So I have to look at that person as that. And that's one of the things that I learned from Mother Teresa when I was in Calcutta. You know, she would take children off the street, and being a Catholic nun, she would be taking in uh, Muslim children. And that is something you just don't do there in India. But her motto was, this child has a mother or had a mother, and it's my responsibility to help this child. And that was kind of like one of the things that I kind of took on as a philosophy when a person comes to see me. You know, this person has a mother or had a mother, and I treat everybody the same. If you could go back to when you were seven and everything you've learned now, would you change anything that happened? No, I wouldn't change anything. Um, of course, I've learned so much more through trial and error, through all the sittings I've done. It's really the same energy, the same source, which is love, which is unconditional love. And I mean, many times when a person is trying to come through in spirit, many, many times it's their way of just trying to show their existence that they're still around, that they made the journey, that they made the crossing, that they are good, that they are okay. And that's probably about 75% of the time. 25% uh, of the time is a person coming through really to try to show their regrets trying to show how sorry they are for the way that they treated somebody or reacted to something in a family. So that's the other 25%. But the communication, it's always healing for the client when we do the session. But going back to when I was seven years of age, that same energy that I was feeling, it's the exact same energy that I feel in every single session. It's just really a quality of high energy and, and high quality love. Why is death so hard and important for people? I think it's, um, it's you know, of course, society. I think it's family and also, you know, it's the unknown. People are really ultimately afraid of the unknown and most of the people on all subjects that they're hateful on um, or they're afraid of, it's because it's the unknown. They don't have any knowledge of it. So the first instinct that comes up is fear. And so my belief is that it, up until they've had a session with a quality medium or have had any experiences on their own, such as dreams coming through or different sightings or smells from a person who's passed over, for those that haven't got those experiences, then they still question, really, is life after death real? But when you get that validation and it really comforts the soul, then it really makes the process of death um, easy to handle. But for those, as I mentioned, who haven't had that experience, then, of course, there's a lot of fear there. You said that you experience death in all aspects and, and senses. But do you get burnt out at the end of the day from all this? Sometimes yes and sometimes no. And that's one of the drawbacks of the work that I do is I can schedule dinner plans with friends or family for Tuesday night or Thursday night or Friday night, whatever it may be. But I don't know what I'm going to be like at the end. Sometimes um, after doing six sessions in one day is what I normally do in the office. Sometimes I will come home and I am just so super charged up where I'm the life of the party and I have more energy than anybody else there without having any caffeine, no coffee in my system. I'm really connected to that high vibration of spirit. There's other times where I will finish a day at the office and I'll come home and I just sometimes will have to cancel my plans or I will go out and call it a night early just because my brain is just so mentally fried of all the information that has come through and also the person who I sat with. And it's a one-third, 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 meaning the one-third takes the medium to be prepared and knowledgeable doing the work. 
it also takes one third the person who comes to see me, you know, making sure that they're prepared and that they come to the office uh, relaxed. And also one third spirit. Not everybody in spirit side who crosses over will be open to mediumship because just as much as you have the thoughts here of skepticism, many times you'll have the same thoughts over there. Even people who have come in the sittings many times, such as a father or brother or whatnot, will show in that session that they would never have believed in this in life and that they are very surprised that they themselves are actually coming through and, and doing the work. Does that make sense? It, it sure does. And when you do sure live, does. bigger events, does live it have the same events. energetic effect? Large events, when I do my crowds for the casinos, which are 700 people or more, I always tell everybody in the audience, hope and pray that you don't get called out today. Hope and pray that the person to the left of you and the person to the right of you gets the session and not yourself. And I say that because whenever you keep on saying, please, please come to me, come to me, come to me, it energetically goes away from you. So if you really want to have the sitting in a large audience, I tell everybody, you know, hope and pray someone else gets the session, gets the healing and not yourself. And then that, of course, takes the energy from a need to energy of love. The more love that comes into the session or into the group or into the room, the more validations from spirit that we get is because it's really fed off of love. I noticed in your live events, you prepare people to be in the space where they feel safe and happy. Is that something you discovered over time or something you made up or what? Um, are you saying in my meditation or in the beginning of the sitting? Beginning of the sitting. Right. I had to make them feel comfortable. And so that's why I make it in, in my office, which is, has a very, very comfortable surrounding and environment. And I make them as comfortable as possible because if they're comfortable, I'm comfortable. And if I'm comfortable and they're comfortable, then spirit is comfortable. And then that's when you get most of the validation coming through. So um, yeah, over the years I've noticed and if the person's comfortable, then they don't need to say one word, but as long as they're comfortable and receptive, then we're able to get the communication through. Doesn't matter what doesn't media matter you what use, if it's TV, person, radio, um, over the phone, doesn't really matter, does it? Well, I can speak on doing sessions in person and also on the phone first. In person, of course, you know, that person who comes to see me, uh, the person that they are hoping to come through might not come through, but someone else will. But I have control of the surroundings when they're in my office. When a person does it by phone, then I always tell them to make sure that they don't have any other calls coming in, that nobody's going to be knocking at their front door, that they are completely unhitched from any distractions from the outside world. And if they can do that via phone, then that works just as fine. You know, as far as the television I've done, that's fine too, as long as it's in a comfortable setting. If the cameras or if people are not walking by, it's not distracting, we get the same validation as if we were doing it in my office. Tim, if you could go out to the public and offer them one piece of information that you've learned through your journey, experiences, stories, what would it be? Actually, I'd say too that, you know, life after death is real and love everybody and love someone at all costs. Because many times when we break that connection with love, then our health starts to deteriorate. For example, I've seen many times when a, a wife has lost her husband or a mother who has lost her son. So much anger comes through, so much despair comes through, so much hurt comes through, you know, whether that son was murdered, whether the, the husband committed suicide. I mean, there's so many different emotions that a person will feel 
when losing a loved one. When they stick with that energy, I really believe that, and I've seen in many experiences that when you hold on to that energy over time, illness and disease set in. And that's also when you don't love. A lot of times, a lot of times people don't love whether one ethnic group or one religion or whether it's a mother-in-law not liking a son-in-law or different sides of the family. And when you stop loving, that's the same feelings as a person who has lost somebody. It really builds up a lot of toxicity in the body. And I've seen many times, Aaron, that wherever that toxicity builds up, that's usually where the disease will start from. With death, and you have seen probably bereavements through the clients, is there any way of changing that towards the, the joy and happy that the, the family member or the, the husband or wife have lived over that period of time? Right, and that's the validations that come through from spirit showing that they are actually there. Things that only that person would have known and nobody else. Sometimes when a person comes in from spirit, I, well, first and foremost, I always have my clients or encourage them to have the session recorded, whether I record it or whether they record it themselves, because there's some information that will come through that can't be verified or that client will say, no, that's not true. Finding out later when they listen, let someone else in that family listen to that audio, or many also times when they re-listen to that audio, they'll see how those things do make sense or rather how those things are true. And then, of course, that brings a lot of joy in their minds and their hearts because they realize that that person that was coming through was most definitely communicating and that person was there in spirit in the room. That brings them very, very much joy. Can a person know when they're about to die? Uh, you're talking about just a, a, a layman person, like a regular person? Yeah. Yeah, yeah sometimes it, a person knows that. There are many times where, you know, I've seen with mothers who have come to see me and the son passed at 35 years of age and the mother told me, she goes, you know, even when my child was a, a, a very young boy, he goes, you know, mom, I'm not going to live past 30. He died at 35, but this is something that the, the boy would have said over and over again and that's been ver verified. So obviously that person that passed over had some type of insight. When that happens, I sometimes look at that as that passing and that life was predestined. That person knew that they only were going to have a short life and they were picking up on what was already predestined or rather what they already signed on to do when they incarnated that body. But most of the time, at least 60 to 70 percent, 60 to 65, 70 percent of the time, a person does not know and will not know. With suicide, is that a time ticking on the soul or how does that work? Depends on the person. I believe with the American Indians and with the American Indians, whenever a tribes member, whether male or female, did the act of suicide, they realized that that person needed to go back home. So they actually honored that person and every time that they thought of that person, they honored that person because they realized that that person had to go back home as you and me and everybody else will eventually go back home. So unlike the Judeo-Christian society, you know, they didn't put that person in hell or purgatory. I have brought through many people who have committed suicide and some people said, I really regret doing this. There's other times people have come through and says, you know, given the chance, I'll do it again. I didn't want to be in that body anymore. But for the people who have that regret, usually the regret is not so much on what they did not accomplish, 
many times, most of the time, the regret is the hurt that they left upon that family when they committed suicide. And they didn't, they were in so much pain that they didn't fully think it out on really how much pain they would have left people in. So they weren't thinking things through when they did the act of suicide. And many times they want those people, those family members or friends to know that they are sorry for the pain that they left them in, but also reflecting back to them how much pain that they were in. But they just weren't thinking things out. They just wanted themselves out of the body because they were experiencing so much pain. Tim, what do you have on your agenda for 2018 to do? Well, last week I was in London doing a demo. I did that last week. Also, I did an all-day workshop last week in London. And I'll, of course, I also did three days of full sessions. You know, this week I'm, I'm here with all of you and lovely Dublin. This was my uh, new country I haven't been to before. And from what I see, it's absolutely just beautiful. It's so clean and so beautiful. The Irish are just so amazing. They're just so nice. It's so nice. It's such a refreshing feel to, to have. Then I uh, leave uh, end of this week, and then for the month of February, I'm back at home doing private sessions. And then in March, for two weeks, I'm doing work in Japan. And then I come back to the States to do work. And then I'm off to Portugal, Spain, and Greece in the month of May. I'm doing work. Fantastic. Tim, where can we find you? At timbrandmedium.com. So T-I-M-B-R-A-U-N medium.com. Fantastic. Tim, it was a pleasure having you on and sharing your journey, your stories, and experiences. Thank you very much for having me on the show, Aaron, and thank you very much for the work that you do. Thank you for spending the time to listen to the show. If you want to learn more, check out sansit.com. That's S-A-N-C-I-T dot com. Join Sansit Group on Facebook and contact us if you have any questions. Until next time, have an awesome day and rock on.